0: News. news, 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 New York City.
1: The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. F- Welcome to FAQ NYC. This is Alex. Today's date is April. Wait, what is today's date?
0: Today it's April 13th.
1: Today's date is April 13th, and uh, we have a very special guest today, uh, Dave from Dopey is here joining us to talk about a myriad of things. One of the reasons I asked him on was uh, I'm reading all these articles talking about, you know, the increase in overdoses. In March, Lee Harris for the city had reported that although neither the city nor the state have released numbers on overdose deaths in 2020, they were already starting to spike in 2019. Over... The course of the pandemic, pretty much in 2020, the number of times that first responders used Narcan went from like 4,825 to 6,432. So clearly there's something going on. Um, but I brought Dave on because I would say he's an expert in the candid depiction of what recovery um, and addiction actually looks. And feels like in new york city dave can you say hello to the faq audience
0: hello faq nyc it is an honor and a pleasure to be with you guys and thank you for having me on
1: so i guess let's start before we go back into your credentials as a new yorker because you have so many uh let's go into uh what is dopey and how did it start
0: uh, dopey is a podcast. Uh, we call it, I mean, if you want to go on iTunes, Dopey's called On the Dark Comedy of Drug Addiction. But if you're a Dopey fan, you know it's the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I started it with a friend of mine, and the idea was to basically tell our worst drug addict stories. And then both of us were in recovery, so we kind of had to start telling people that we were in recovery. So it kind of became this podcast about drug addiction, and recovery, and my friend who I started the podcast with was this guy named Chris, and I had met him in treatment, and he wound up relapsing while we made the show, and I didn't know that, and he died two and a half years into us making the show. He died of a fentanyl overdose in Boston. So I just kept making the show, This American Life, did a huge piece about us, and uh, our audience expanded.
1: As someone who's pretty open about being sober I oftentimes find that like my most fun conversations is the dumb shit I did while you know reviving sure. alcohol and taking copious amounts of you name it that's why I like your podcast a lot it you know allows for a different picture of a drug addict in recovery than like You know, that kid who's chewing on his sleeve in a folding chair with a really concerned mom played by Julia Roberts, where life does not seem fun at all for the rest of an addict's life. (laughs)
0: It's funny that you should say that because I was the kid who chewed on every sleeve, every shirt collar, like to the point of like they had to get thrown away because they would get mangled like a dog. I was that kid like I would chew pencils to the point where you can't write with them, you know, so.
1: Well, I mean, but I I might have like chewed my sleeve and bit my nails, but I also stayed awake till five in the morning at diners chomping on French fries, laughing harder than I've ever laughed in my life after deciding to put it all down.
0: Totally. I just just even hearing you say chewed up sleeve. It just really takes me right back. But for us, it was like we didn't like get with like there was a lot of very highfalutin smart people who were like, oh, you guys are en- ending the stigma and you guys are taking away shame from this stuff. And like for us, we were just like idiots and we just really liked making each other laugh. And I was this big Howard Stern show fan. And uh, in the 90s, there was a guy named Artie Lang who is a drug addict on the Howard Stern show. And he would tell these fucked up drug stories and And it just was like, it was so obviously perfect entertainment. And um, I was making, um, you know, one of my New York City credentials is I work at Katz's Deli. And I was making uh, a talk show at Katz's called The Last Jewish Waiter. And Chris loved The Last Jewish Waiter, and like New York Magazine wrote about The Last Jewish Waiter, and Paper Magazine wrote about it, and Chris was like, I want to do something that gets me attention. And I was like, well, what do you want to do? And then I remembered Chris had like the greatest drug stories I ever heard, and I knew that I could make fun of Chris in a way that he would like it, and our podcast just came out of that. It created a space that was a shame-free space, and it created a show that removed the stigma from addiction and all that stuff, but it was the Fun, You know what I mean? Me and him making fun of each other and laughing and going over the we I always said we laughed the survivors laugh that we survived it. And then, of course, in the end, Chris didn't survive. And um, which is just very, very, very painful to even consider because I still make the show because I think. The community, and that's a bunch of drug addicts and alcoholics, deserve to be kept company by their own. And we have drug addicts and alcoholics telling the dumb shit they did, you know?
1: It's a weird way that I think the medical industry, you know, desperately wants to capture some way to have a quantifiable road to recovery. And it's so difficult because a lot of the most successful the most successful stories I've heard anecdotally are just that they're anecdotal stories where like someone was in a place, whether it was like a, a 12 step room or a rehab or just on a street corner. And they ran into an old friend and it's this story, it's this connection and the, the myriad of factors that go into making a moment like that happen. How do you, um, how do you make a recipe for that like how do you like how do you build that in a little cauldron in a hospital and then like get the data for results when it's just people telling stories and being able to laugh at yourself as the one thing that clicks and goes oh life is gonna be fine i'm gonna laugh again or i'm gonna cry again or, or what have you
0: i think that's a brilliant a brilliant thought and i haven't even heard that question asked Like what is the recipe? Like something that I always said. Like whenever we talked about people who might need to get clean, or that person should get clean, or somebody wants to get clean. The fact of the matter is, like, there's nothing anybody can do for anybody, you know. Basically, which is like the the bottom line, which is the saddest aspect. But you just saying that, like, what is the recipe? What it just kind of triggered something in my head where the recipe is basically you throw it's like it's like if you have a pet you throw them as many toys as possible and hope they play with something if you have a kid you give them as much access to education fun community connection and you hope that something sticks and i think the same thing applies for addicts you know i think the more possible connective places the more likely they connect to one of them. But I'm somebody who, you know, I started using drugs when I was probably 18 and I used basically until I was 41 and I went to every kind of treatment that ever existed. Like I went to more, I went to every free detox in New York. I went to every free detox in LA. I went to a couple of bougie rehabs in Connecticut and South Florida and shit. And um, and nothing was going to help me. You know what I mean? I learned shit, but I didn't want to stop. I needed that bolt of lightning moment that I could never have created myself. You know what I mean? So I think what you do is you throw as many things at people, right?
1: Because I always think of it as chaos theory as the only way I can explain it. You know, a thousand butterflies flap their wings over the village cigars where you can get like two pence in a screen for a dollar. And all of a sudden, Alex has a memory of like a younger self. And I just decide I'm not going to drink anymore, or I'm not going to do Coke anymore, or what have you. So I think it, it is just really hard to measure it. Speaking of detoxes in New York City, over the pandemic, I had a bunch of experiences with people who sometimes call me and they're like, so I'm thinking about getting sober. And I'm like, no shit, you've been alone in an apartment for like the last <laughs> six months. And you're just realizing that like, why are you ordering party drugs when you're all alone? Um, Trying to help people navigate the detox situation in New York is is sad, but also hilarious. I've had to advise people, you have to have alcohol in your system before you go into like a free detox. They can't turn you away if you have alcohol or benzos. And for people who don't know, benzodiazepines like Xanax, uh, Ativan, a couple others, because these are the things for which it is fatal to detox from. Heroin, and opiates, it's uncomfortable. I mean, horribly from what I understand, but it's not fatal. So they can like turn you away in some cases. I know that before the pandemic started, they were planning to close like all the city detoxes for, you know, uh, moving people more into clinical programs and like outpatient programs like methadone and treatment and stuff like that. Now that's a whole other episode, whether that's, you know, good or bad or, but Just the absurdity of having to go and get a heroin addict drunk before you bring them to Beth Israel, which is a private detox, uh, is is just something that I never even considered till most of my friends were recovering drug addicts.
0: I think the first first uh, detox I went to was Sheridan Square at Beth Israel, and I think it was public when I went there. And I... I think I was taking benzos. You know, I think I I had a little benzo connect. But even if I wasn't taking benzos, I think that just about all the dope I ever did, be it here or in California, had benzos in them. So even (laughs) if I wasn't taking them, it came up on the on the, the, the piss screen anyway. So, like, I think that's kind of funny. Like, you don't know what's in your in your piss anyway. I never drank before I went to detox, and they, they never turned me away because there were so many drugs in my system. But I think most of the heroin that you would get would have some kind of benzodiazepine just in the cut, you know, to make it more potent.
1: What have you been seeing that has been happening in the kind of addict community over COVID, over this last stretch
0: well, when you sent me those articles, it made me realize that I'm pretty out of touch with the using community, you know. Um, and first thing it made me see is where I could get dope in the Bronx if I wanted to get dope. I could go up to whatever park that was. So if I, if I need to go, I'll go to Roberto Clemente Park. If I need to, if I need to relapse, um, no. But the the things that I'm closest to are uh, are people in recovery, and and you know I go to I do do twelve step meetings and i know people who are really struggling who who like come in and go out and and with the pressure and the stress and the you know the instability and the isolation of covid it it's very sad and it's like to me it's i mean like i can speak very easily as somebody who's in recovery because i'm in recovery when i used to use i remember i was using around 911 and i'm sure a lot of people were like Nine Eleven is a perfect time to get sober. To me, it was a perfect time to get high, and I bet you that's the way people describe uh, COVID. You know, half the people are like, "This is the perfect time to get sober," and then the people who are getting high is like, "This seems like the perfect time to stay high because nobody's going to notice I'm not around." So I think I think that's a it's a double edged sword.
1: You you had told me on the phone that the dopey fan base had actually created a. kind of online community
0: well what, what happened is i'm pretty in awe of it and i'm very proud of it even though i have very little to do with it which is basically we did this show that was like about drugs and about drug addiction and getting clean or not getting clean and relapsing and this and that and we talked about methadone and we talked about suboxone and we talked about benzos and coke and like different roads to recovery And I, since I had been on methadone for so long and been on Suboxone for a bit and Chris had been on Suboxone, I would make fun of people who were getting medicated assisted treatment. And I would only make fun of them in that I was never sober. If I was taking methadone, I was taking a handful of pills before I got the methadone. I was probably shooting dope after I got the methadone, or luckily, if I was lucky, before, and I would smoke weed for the rest of the day, and people would tell me I was practicing harm reduction. So I would, like, laugh, like, that harm reduction is a great way to get high. Um, but I would also alienate a lot of the audience, and I, and I didn't care because I didn't mind being the bad guy as long as Chris was the good guy and we were entertaining. But then Chris died, and uh, and I realized I needed to change my tune because I didn't want anyone to feel alienated with dopey you know dopey is supposed to be this very inclusive place that keeps addicts company and i think we accomplished that so i changed my tune and i decided that uh i support anybody in medicated assisted treatment if they're actually doing it i support anybody who's using i just want people to feel supported because i'm just like them and i got an email from this woman in new hampshire and her name was Jamie. And she wrote me this beautiful email saying how she was never interested in recovery because she could never get abstinent. But she was a heroin addict who was using Suboxone and she was smoking weed. But she loves dopey. And she said that dopey was in the vanguard of the alt recovery movement. And I was like, holy Ooh, shit. Yeah. I was like, holy shit. We're in the vanguard of the alt recovery movement. I was like, this is something. And then, you know, like I just started talking about the alt recovery movement. And the alt-recovery movement states that there are a million ways to get addicted and there are an infinite ways to get well. And it's basically we support whatever path that might be. If you're an AA, great. If you're an NA, great. If you're on Suboxone but your life is better, great. If you're on methadone but you have some hope and some joy, great. If you're into cooking and you don't want to go to a meeting and you're scared of God, great. Whatever it is that makes your life better, that veers you away from the misery of addiction, we support. And, um, and the dopey Zoom happened out of Chris's death also. Basically, I made a joke when Chris was alive trying to be kind of like a character and talk about the dopey nation. And I was like trying to be like a preacher and I was like, stay strong dopey nation kind of thing, (laughs) you know, it was like a bit. And, uh, but then it it like clicked and all of a sudden thousands of people were like, I'm in the dopey nation, I'm in the dopey nation. And it was like very cool. And it made me very excited and proud and happy to hear it. And, uh, and Chris and I always fucked around with the idea of like, do we want to set up a fan page And then kind of like listen to what people think. But my ego was too fragile. And like me and like people would be like team Chris, team Dave. And I was like, let's not do it because it's going to be all fucked up. And he agreed. So we didn't do it. But then after he died, the fans contacted me and they said, well, can we set up a Dopey Nation fan page basically to mourn Chris? And I was like, absolutely. So they set up this Dopey Nation fan page because it's like basically strangers from all over the world who who were distraught that Chris died, and they could tell their partner or their friends, but they were like, well, who was that? And they were like, oh, it's some podcast host from Boston. So it didn't make sense to their family and friends, but to their fellow listeners, it was very real, and they shared their loss, and they mourned Chris. And then after the pandemic hit, there was a guy in the Dopey Nation, and I think it was a guy named Ben, and uh, he was like, we should set up Zoom meetings for the Dopey Nation, so, they started doing Dopey Nation Zooms about a year ago. Now they have, I think, 26 meetings a week. They have AA meetings, NA meetings, something called MARA, which is Medically Assisted Recovery Anonymous meetings. They do Refuge Recovery, which is the Buddhist shit. They do Smart Recovery. They do uh, just straight harm reduction. And, and it's all under the banner of the Alt Recovery movement. And it's just the coolest thing, you know, that. And they they've made friends, you know what I mean? It's like this girl in Iowa is best friends with this dude in Australia through dopey zoom. It's pretty amazing.
1: I mean, I love that. Sometimes I get too much in my head because I'm, uh, you know, I'm reading about policy all day and, and what the mayor is doing and you know, what kind of like community based programs are getting funded and things like that. And I can get very academic about whether, um, methadone and suboxone is too much of a you know a profit maker and whether you know the closing of the detox and pushing people into assisted recovery is not actually what's good for the larger addict community and I could get very academic about it but I have to remember I try to get out of the academic head and just talk to real people I have a very good friend that got sober after 10 11 years of being a pretty hardcore heroin addict And she went to an N.A. meeting and somebody very casually said, oh, well, you can't really start counting your sober days until you're off methadone. And this is someone who had tried to go to a detox, but the detox was not going to wane her properly. So they were they were only giving her the option of going the methadone route. And uh, I was just like, oh, man, why the fuck did you say that? And now she's not going to come back to hang out. You know, who knows? So, I mean, luckily, and if anyone's interested, that person is doing very, very well. They've been um, waning off methadone and living a pretty dope life. Uh, But, yeah, I just have to stay away from getting too exclusionary when I talk about drugs just because I read a lot of articles. Totally. And it's
0: also just like, I mean, I never would have thought that Dopey could do any good for anybody. But the good that it did... Is it made people laugh and it made people be like, oh, my God, if those guys can have fun and be sober, then maybe I kind of am interested in being sober. But that was the draw. It was that thing. And that's like, you know, what I'm most proud of about it. Obviously, I I make the show because I like to make the show. I don't make the show to help anybody. I make the show to try And uh, and make an entertaining show. And I feel like if the show is entertaining, maybe somebody will get help. And I feel like if the show was designed to help people, it wouldn't be entertaining, you know. Um, And then the thing with the methadone and suboxone, it's like it's just it's like we said before, it's like a bolt of inspirational lightning that hits somebody and says, I'm going to try this. And then it's like and then you stick with it or you don't. Right.
1: It was a bolt of inspirational luck lightning that made me just hate opiates from a very young age. I had accidentally done too like snorted a little too much of something i thought was coke and i was like 14 and it was actually dope i i was so itchy and i was vomiting so profusely that for the next several years i was like no i would why would i do something that just gives me the flu now that didn't stop me from five years later being like look everybody loves this maybe i'll just do one bump again but same reaction so luckily it was that bolt of lightning that made the circumstances line up that made me just kind of hate heroin for forever. That's, I,
0: think, I think that's chemistry. I think that's biology. Like, I, I did coke and it did nothing for me. And I would drink and I would feel like shit. Just my brain chemistry aligned with weed and benzos and heroin. It's brain, it's biology. You know, your biology made you drink and do a ton of coke.
1: True. I, I liked to mix it up and be my own little chemist. I was into beta blockers for a while to bring me down off of Coke, which is wildly dangerous. Your heart could stop like immediately. Um like
0: boost bar. Yeah. Boost bar? Yeah.
1: You grew up in New York too, especially around nine eleven was one of the only times where I had a spontaneous bout of just like not drinking, not going out and partying. I was just sort of there for it. It was almost like addiction stood still for me in that moment. Um, but you had an opposite experience. Where did you grew up in New York, right?
0: Yeah, I grew up uh in Chelsea. I grew up on uh 8th Avenue on 27th Street. I grew up in the International Ladies Garment Workers Building housing projects. Oh. And uh and I lived there forever. I lived there uh I got an apartment there when I was like 20 and I w- and I was living on 24th and 8th uh when 9/11 happened. And I was also uh on methadone when 9/11 happened. And I remember and I was also on ha- still taking heroin. Uh, when 9-11 happened, even though I was on the methadone. So I remember uh, it's like one of my most famous stories that I tell really is that I woke up on 9-11 and uh, I didn't know what was happening. And my parents were in California and my mom called me to check on my sister and my aunt and all I could think. And then I found out that the World Trade Center had gotten attacked and, and, and destroyed. And all I could think was, well, how was I going to get my methadone? And I called my sister and I called my aunt, who seemed way better off than I was. And I left my building and 8th Avenue was just teeming with people running uptown. You know what I'm saying? Like there were no vehicles in the street. It was just everybody running uptown. And I'm just walking downtown like do do doo do got to get the methadone. You know, and I'm like a salmon swimming upstream where everybody's coming. And I'm just like... I know the methadone clinic's going to be open, that nothing will shut a methadone clinic down, not even 9-11. And I'm just kind of casually walking. I get to 14th Street and it's just, you know, bedlam people running and terrified. I get to not, to 14th Street and there's like these army guys, you know, with machine guns on 14th Street with tanks and troop trucks and shit on 14th Street. And you're not allowed to cross 14th Street. And I, I went up to the guy and I was like, I got to get across the street. And I was very, I was very casual. I was like, I got to get across the street. And he's like, you're not getting across the street. You don't see, you know, I have a machine gun. There's a tank right here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, I got to get my, my medicine. And he's like, what do you mean you got to get your medicine? I was like, I got to get to the methadone clinic. It's on 13th street. And this is 14th street. I got to get across the street. And he's like, well, do you have any ID? And I was like, yes, I do. And I take out my methadone card. You know, it's like the only ID I never lost. And I, and I show him the fucking methadone card and he waves me across the street with his machine gun. You know, like no one's allowed to cross, but this junkie's allowed to go get his methadone. I get to there's nobody on the other side of 14th Street. I'd you know, be good
1: just... for that guy, though, because yeah. otherwise it would have been a very painful 9-11. I am shocked
0: that he waved me across the street. Anyway, nobody's on the other side of the of the street. And I walk up to the church on 13th and 7th Avenue, and and I open the door, and I swear to God, inside that methadone clinic is just business as usual. Teaming with people. Everyone's just like, doo-doo-doo, here's your methadone. Everybody got an extra dose because it was 9-11, you know, and that was it, and I left. And then as soon as I left, I was like, fuck um, I'm going to take out every dollar from the bank and go to Bushwick and cop dope. And I, and I got on the L train, the L train was running and I went to Bushwick and I spent every dollar I had on heroin just in case the world was going to end. And I went back to my apartment and I got high and that was my fucking nine 11, you know?
1: So when did you actually start doing complete like abstinence from drugs and alcohol?
0: Um, I got clean and sober on, um, in August of 2015. So like, uh, five and a half years ago.
1: Oh, wow. That's a long time. A long
0: time, to- a long time of abstinence or a long time of using.
1: A lo- I mean, both, but a yes. long time of abstinence because abstinence is, seems longer than using. Than using, right. And you started around 18. Were you in college? I,
0: um, I started using, weed and I and like I fell in love with weed as soon as I, I started smoking it and I, I, I used weed like alcoholically immediately and uh and I always was into like playing music and kind of feeling like I liked outsiderness and art stuff and I was drawn to all those kind of poetic beatnik stories and I just basically started using whatever drugs came my way when I was in college. And heroin I went to, to art school, I went to SUNY Purchase and uh and heroin kind of showed up in college, and I was unimpressed with it when I um, when I did it. Um, I, I just figured I was going to stick with weed, and I always messed around with psychedelics, and I, and, I, and I did a little bit of coke, but I'm so neurotic and high-strung that the coke didn't do anything for me. But um, I wound up becoming a, a TV producer and making some money, and we had a drug delivery service, it was a. It was like a. It was one of those old school New York City like bike guy. He was a kid. He was probably like seventeen years old, and he had a, a business card that said "Indulge," and it was a white silhouette of a man with a top hat, and it said "Indulge." And he would come to my apartment and and sell us coke and and weed and ecstasy and whatever we wanted, basically. And uh, I was on a job in Michigan for this TV production company, and when I came home. This guy who was staying in my house had all these these kids from my art school buying Coke. And I said to the dude, you're making all this money in my apartment. What are you going to give me? And I remember it still very well. He gave us two free bags of heroin, and he threw them on the table. And uh, it was a Sunday night, and we did the heroin, and we watched The Simpsons. And in the morning, in the morning I woke up still high, and I was like, this is the way I want to feel for the rest of my life. You know? And and then basically the habit came in because I was making money.
1: The funny thing about New York delivery services is that a lot of them back in the day have are based on like binders of phone numbers and client names that are passed down uh, every time somebody sells a book. They either sell a cell phone or they sell a quote unquote book, which is like a binder of clients with special codes. And now that weed is legal, I wonder where that very analog culture is gonna go um because a lot of a lot of these listservs were based around weed and hard drugs were extra
0: totally i i worked uh weed delivery services and i had a lot of friends that worked weed delivery services and it was definitely digital by the time uh in terms of like i'm sure people were handing off phones and and computers and shit the question is like when will dispensaries open up and like I mean, I I mean, when I was a kid, we would buy weed at spots like there was a spot on 3rd Street that we would go to. There was a spot on Houston Street. There was a spot on 27th Street on the second floor in a dance studio. That was just a spot. You know what I mean? It was like it was a different time. And I remember there was a spot in Hell's Kitchen that sold hash. It was, like, this classic spot on, like, Ninth Avenue, and you could get hash.
1: Juice bar spots were everything when I was in high school.
0: Right. But it's, like, so what happens with dispensaries, period? Like... Will delivery services still operate? Probably. They won't get licenses. People will stick with their people, right?
1: I mean, maybe. It it it's all remains to be seen. What's interesting is what happens to weed culture. Is weed still a quote-unquote gateway if it's not criminal? If weed is like beer and a 15-year-old smokes a joint but doesn't feel like now they've entered into this illegal community and they haven't had to go to a drug dealer to get it, will that still lead to any other drugs
0: well the question is it's like is the thing that makes weed the the gateway it's illegalness it's outlawness or the fact that it's a mind and mood altering substance because beer, is a mind and mood-altering substance. And if you're not of age, you're kind of an outlaw if you're taking it. So I think it's the same thing. I think I think uh, it's getting high, basically. It's like getting high is getting high. I mean, people don't call alcohol a gateway drug. I don't know why, because it's legal, I guess. But, I mean, if you're around addiction, you do call alcohol a gateway drug. Right. I think.
1: Right, that's true. I just, you know, part of me just wonders, would I have ever tried Coke if I wasn't always going to a Coke dealer to buy weed? Right. Which right. I, well, I don't know. There, That was my probably that was my spot. Second Avenue and 13th Street across from some weird like uh, spoken word poetry night. Um, there was a deli with like three cans of condensed milk in it where you could yeah. either buy Coke or weed.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. That's old school New York. I mean, and stuff like that. I, I just started reading uh, the Beastie Boys book and uh, it opens with talking about kind of the late 70s and early 80s in Manhattan, and it's just amazing. I mean, that's before my time, obviously, but just hearing about it reminds me of the condensed milk in the weed store. Like, one of the classic spots was the the spot across the street from the Hells Angels place on uh, Fifth Street or whatever. Oh, yeah. and like, like, that was a classic spot. It was called King David's, and it's just like, that was a, a piece of culture, and... That, uh, we got to experience and like as, as fucked up as parts of it are, there was a lot of magic to it too.
1: Yeah. So you were working at Katz's Deli and you were still using while you were working there.
0: This is when I was in high school, uh, before I went to college, I started at Katz's and then I never worked there again until I, uh, was 35 and I had come back to New York and, um, And I didn't do heroin at Katz's in the beginning. I wound up relapsing on heroin working there. And I got sober there at the same time. So, both things.
1: It's kind of awesome that these like family institutions and these old mom and pop shops, you know, when something operates like a family, it kind of operates like a family. I worked at Veselka in high school. My dad had gotten me the job as a favor because I was driving him crazy working for him at Burritoville. And um, I would work the graveyard shift because I was a terrible waitress. Um, And I would work as like an extra uh, server on brunch days. And um, the graveyard shift of Friday and Saturday at Veselka brought in my favorite characters. It also was like a really good reason for me to uh, do speed. So, you know, as it goes.
0: How did, how did, was your dad connected to Visel, to Viselka?
1: No, he owned Burritoville, which was this chain of Mexican I restaurants. Know Burriti, I know Burritoville. I yeah. know yeah. And sure. so like back in the 90s. And so he, I was driving him nuts working for him. So he went over to Viselka and said, hey, can you give my That's daughter funny. a job? Um, she's driving me nuts working for me.
0: Well, Katz's, Viselka, Katz's, Burritoville are all hallowed New York City institutions. And like is like there weren't, I mean, like the guys at Katz's didn't do a lot of drugs. Like lots of restaurants have like drugs built into the culture. And Katz's never was like that, or at least never in my time there, or I was never privy to it. But it's not like Coke and Speed, which is good.
1: Oh, I was the 16 year old bringing the Speed to vaselka Vaselka's is like mostly, you know, on the graveyard shift. It's, you know, little Ukrainian grandmas coming in at four in the morning to bake the pierogies of the day.
0: Burritoville still up, right? Is it no, still up? no,
1: it closed down after some like, you know, small-time hustle stuff that went awry in the late '90s. My dad and his partner had to sell it. Um, maybe oh, no. some, maybe a little tax evasion. They sold it to one of those deli chains, who then basically ran it into the ground. Burritoville is is uh, a a a moment in '90s New York time.
0: Absolutely. Um, But Veselka still is happening and the food there is great and Katz's is still happening. And both of those places you go there and and like it's like a time machine. Yeah. So it's so old New York.
1: And it's very much run like like it's got a familial vibe is what I'll say. I know that we're running out of time here. It was great having you on the show. Um, I would love to have you on again to talk more like New York. Drug history, in New York, uh, drug stuff.
0: Absolutely. News, 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 news. news. New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast
1: getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. F-A-Q. <laughs> FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and the proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week.